Luke chapter 11. We're deep into our study through Luke, traveling through Luke's account here, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, which is what we typically do here at King's Chapel. Last week we began chapter 11. We're going to continue that chapter this morning. And last, last Sunday we looked at probably what is the most popular, bar none, um, prayer out there. Probably many of us know it by heart. The Lord's Prayer. And we learned from Jesus' model of prayer that we can address God as our Father. Those who belong to Christ have been adopted into His family. We have a relationship with God as our Father, which is far superior to any relationship we, we could have here on earth with an earthly father. And this Heavenly Father is one that is also the holy God of the universe who commands demands our allegiance, our worship, our reverence. He's also at the same time holy and transcendent, yet imminent and near to us. He's approachable. What a mighty and merciful God. But His grace is greater even still. We learn that He is the sovereign God who can all, we can also depend upon for our daily needs. And He forgives the infinite debt of sin that we owe Him and He changes us. He changes us within our hearts so that we can then also extend grace. We can extend forgiveness to others. And because we have been forgiven, because He loves us, because we have His ear in prayer, we're invited to come before Him humbly and to ask Him for whatever we need and, and He will answer us. We can, and we can ask Him relentlessly and He's not uh, tired of hearing our voices and He will answer us. And one of the things that we're taught to ask for as well is His kingdom. We looked at uh, last, last week, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 2. Your kingdom come, right? Your, your kingdom come, your will be done. This morning we're going to look at how God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, brought by the King Himself, Jesus, is a, is a clear picture of how there's a spiritual war going on and we need this kingdom to come uh, to us. We need this kingdom and all the benefits that come with that kingdom. The blessing that come with the king who brings the kingdom to us. <clears throat> we recognize, again, this, there's a spiritual warfare going on. That, that we're not only just wrestling sin, but we're also wrestling against dark spiritual forces that are invisible to us. Demons are real. Satan is real. He's a real enemy. Kind of reminds me of a quote from The Usual Suspects. That cult classic where Verbal Kent is describing... This elusive nature of the drug lord, Kaiser Soze, who's talking to the police and he says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is convincing the world that he doesn't exist. Right? But God's word, his word, tells us differently. Right? And the thrust of our text this morning is that Jesus is the mighty deliverer and the king who overthrows Satan's forces and establishes his eternal kingdom with divine authority and power. And we're going to look at that statement and see how the Scripture points to that um, in four different points throughout our text this morning. First, we'll look at deliverance. We'll look at the Pharisees' defamation of Jesus. We'll look at Christ's declaration of the kingdom. And then we'll look, lastly, at a warning of degradation for those who don't turn to Jesus. So first, let's look to the text at deliverance in verse 14. Our text opens here with Jesus 
freeing a man from demon, casting a demon out, exercising a demon from a man. It's not an unusual event in Jesus' ministry. He had previously done this for, for many people beforehand. In fact, he even did it for a multitude of people at one time in one sitting, if you look back at chapter 6. His healing ministry had, had now also just gone public. It had gone far-reaching because, if you remember, he sent out his disciples, not just the 12, but 72 of them out into Israel to talk about the, the good news of the kingdom, but they brought with them his power, his power to release people from demon possession. And people are now being delivered from their spiritual bondage. And this is a mainstay of Jesus' ministry. As we'll see, he he announced his lordship and his arrival of the kingdom through this, through these acts. And in keeping with the Father's plan, Jesus heals this another man. But unlike the other passages that we've read, Luke doesn't give a lot of detail about this, about what happened. Like, how did Jesus release him? What words did he use? How long had this man been suffering from the state? We don't know all those. It's not exactly there present in the text. Matthew and Mark give a little bit more detail, but it's, that's, it's not important. That's not the, that's not the, um, the focus of, of what Luke's saying and what he wants to point out this morning in his text. We said what we, we do know is that Jesus does release this man. He might have been not only just mute, but also blind, as uh, Matthew points out. So he was essentially, what we do know, he was a prisoner in his own body. He had no window to the outside world. No way to communicate with other people. And by the way, this, this could give us a glimpse into the reason why this demon chose to, to bring about this particular manifestation of bondage, of blindness, and of, of being mute. It was a way of isolating him. That's what this, the Satan likes to do. He likes to isolate us from each other, right? And from God's word and from, and from uh, the power of Christ. This man's detached from the world around him, from his relationships with other people, from, from being able to even express his praise to God vocally. We were made to worship God in that way, with, with all of our person, with all of our, 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 our beings, including with our voices that we just did this morning already by singing. Psalm 95, 1, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 51, 15, Oh, Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. I love Psalm chapter 19, it's a great psalm in general, but at the, the closing part of it, it shows what it looks like when we're firing on all cylinders with our worship, when our words and our motives are conjoined together to worship Jesus. It says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We recognize we don't always do that perfectly, even on Sunday mornings when we're, when we're praising God with our mouths, maybe our heart might be disconnected. We don't do that well, but it is the desire of our hearts, right? For those who have been saved by God's grace, that, that is our desire, is that we will praise God with both our hearts and our minds and our voices. And isn't it good to know, though, that the impediments to our motives, to our senses, will be removed one day, right? In eternity, when Christ returns for His people, in fact, our, our, we won't even just be properly tuned to praise, but our senses will be heightened. Right? Nothing will prevent us from expressing more adequately, more vibrantly, 
right, more loudly the glories of our God one day. We look forward to that day. But getting back to our text, because of this man's demonic possession, he couldn't offer praise to God, even if he wanted to. But Jesus came and changed all that. And in almost a clinical fashion, remember Luke is a doctor, he states simply, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. And even before we get a chance to hear what the, this man says, what his first words are, before we have even time to, to process what just happened, right? This man had just been delivered from demonic possession, from spiritual bondage. This moment, this miracle is, is overshadowed by these religious pundits that are nearby that had just seen all that had gone on. And initially the response seems favorable. I mean, it says the people marveled. They mar marveled because it wasn't something that was done every day. This wasn't a typical occurrence in their everyday lives, seeing somebody released from bondage this way, being once mute, now being able to speak, once blind, now being able to see. They had witnessed this amazing display of Jesus' power and of his of authority, right? He's calling a demon out, and it obeys him. His authority is being made aware to all those who are watching. There's no doubt in their minds that Jesus had just delivered this man. Jesus had done the work. But for some reason, they didn't find what Jesus had done was worthy of his praise. Instead, they actually did the opposite. They, they denounced Jesus. And, and suddenly, this, this crowd that should have had every reason to be joyful and celebrate Jesus' work, his powerful work, and now they became his most ardent detractors. Verses 15 through 16, we see, but some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Matthew and Mark, <clears throat> they out who these defamers are here uh, in more detail in their accounts. They say that they are the Pharisees and the scribes, the scribes being the, the, the religious lawyers of the day. They knew the scriptures very well, God's law very well, kept it to a T, or that they thought they did. And they were the ones who carried a lot of influence in the culture, in Israel, over all the people of Israel. They had a lot of authority. And they're becoming more and more hostile to Jesus as, as he's becoming more popular, as his, his fame is spreading throughout the regions and throughout the nation. And now they're openly challenging Jesus to the point where they're, they're, they're challenging who he is, his identity, his motives for the healing, and where the power and authority comes from for him to do these things. And we'll see that continue to transpire as he gets closer and closer to the cross. They're going to become more and more hostile to him as Jesus goes to, to be crucified in Jerusalem. And as the religious leaders, they, they are the ones who, better than anyone else in the area, they, they would have understood the spiritual dimensions of this man's bondage, of his conditions. They, 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 they should have known better than anybody else that this was spiritual bondage and it demanded a spiritual remedy. And so when Jesus exercises this demon out, this man, they knew that there was a, a spiritual force that was, that was greater than and that was opposed to this demon that was able to relinquish it from this man's life. But... They wouldn't allow themselves to acknowledge what was obvious, that God was working in Jesus Christ to dispel these spiritual dark forces. 
Instead, we see these two different modes of rejection and defamation, and both of them we see are, are actually equally dangerous for those who are opposed to Jesus. The first group are, of antagonists are slanderers. Right? They're the ones who are open and vocal about challenging Jesus' authority and, and, and identity by asserting that the power that he had to cast out these demons is actually coming from Beelzebul, or other translations, Beelzebub. And Beelzebul is likely this reference to this pagan god of Akron, uh, a Philistine god uh, that was also known as Beelzebub. And he was, um, during the days of the prophet Elijah, you can read about in 2 Kings. But over time, what happened was the, the Jewish people would co-opt these names. They, they, they would rebrand these names that were once applied to these, these pagan deities, and now they're going to use them as a derogatory term for demons or for Satan himself. So they're asserting that Jesus, the source of his power to dispel these dark forces, is coming from Satan. They're not just, and they're not sugarcoating their claim. They're, they're being very upfront about where they're, what they're saying, what they're suggesting. In their words, Jesus, Jesus is not the son of God. He is a son of Satan. But there's also a second group of antagonists here, the skeptics. They take the silent approach. They're the ones who are they're kind of brooding. They're maybe murmuring amongst themselves that Jesus needs to just prove himself a little bit more. Greater signs, greater miracles coming from heaven uh, according to them, this, this miracle was, was not enough to convince them that Jesus is who he says he is and that he um, should be followed and that he should be uh, bowed before. They wanted Jesus to perform more signs, or at least they wanted to, for him to perform the signs that they deemed that were more powerful or more persuasive. Look at the tense in verse 16. Luke writes that, that these were the ones that kept seeking a sign. So they didn't just seek a sign, they, they, they kept seeking and I think it's telling. It applies that no matter how much evidence, no amount of evidence was going to convince them that it was enough. There would ne nothing was going to satisfy them to follow Jesus. So the question we have, if we're going to apply this text to our lives this morning, is do you fall into one of these two categories? Right? If you are, what, what, what's keeping you from following Jesus? Maybe you've heard lots of Bible stories, uh, you've heard the gospel, but you think that it's laughable to think that Jesus was God in the flesh, that God, Jesus is God incarnate. Or maybe you go further, maybe you say that Jesus' teachings are, are actually not good, they're, they're, they're actually harmful. Jesus' claims and his teachings, when, when they're actually taken seriously by his followers, are responsible for maybe ostracizing people, or even... Uh, it's responsible for violence throughout history. And this, of course, is to flatten history, right? It's to, it's, it's to, it's to flatten history and, 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 the, and the, uh, the wipe away any good that the church has done throughout history as well, including the establishment of, of Western civilization. And it's true, though. I mean, there's, there's some truth that the church is made up of imperfect people, right? If you're imperfect, raise your hand, like, you know. We're all imperfect people, sinners saved by God's grace. We recognize that we depend on God's grace. And we don't always reflect Christ the way that we would like to, the way that we should. But we also know there's no greater glimpse, right, into the majesty of Christ, the transforming work of Christ, 
than when we look at God's people and we see them living in light of the gospel, of loving God, loving people, loving their neighbors, standing up for those who need assistance. Maybe you used to be one who slandered God. Maybe you're one who was once in that category, but by God's grace, you've experienced the transforming work of Christ in your heart. When God delivered you from the domain of darkness and, right, and transferred you to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians chapter 1. Praise God for that. Praise God for what He's done in your life. Maybe you're a skeptic, right? One who, you're still waiting for a little bit more evidence. Better proof that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, there's evidence in nature around us, right? Nature points to a great designer, but we know that there's even more specific evidence. There's, there's more specific and special revelation, disclosure of who God is in the, passage of, in the pages of Scripture that we're looking at this morning. It points to the person and work of Jesus Christ as being the evidence of Jesus' lordship. And ironically, the skeptics in this text are, they're, look, they're looking for a sign, they're looking for a sign from heaven when one has been presented and demonstrated right in front of their eyes, right before them. But as one commentator put it, God does not coerce faith with irresistible proof and does not submit to human demands for verification. God does not appease their demands. He's not obligated to prove himself to us in any specific way. That, that's to reverse the, the, the creator-creation kind of dynamic, right? God doesn't owe us anything, but we as his creatures that were made by him owe him everything. But wildly enough, right, the scripture teaches us that in face of our doubts and our rebellion, God graciously reveals himself to us in the face of Jesus Christ for everybody to see. Jesus is the proof. He's all the proof that we need and we can confidently place our faith and trust in him. So maybe you have not witnessed Jesus perform an exorcism as we see in this text, but maybe you know somebody. Maybe you're not a follower of Christ, but you know somebody who's been saved and can, you can t attest to the transforming work of, of Christ in, this, in a person's life. So I would say don't be a skeptic. Don't be like the ones that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy and warns against those who are always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. I would say, put an end to your, your testing. Turn to Jesus, the ultimate litmus test of who God is. Now, as truly God and, tr and truly man, Jesus heard the religious leader's slanders, but he also heard the unspoken skepticism of these other group of people that were all standing beside him. It says in the text that he knows their thoughts. This is a clear an obvious reference to his omniscience, his being all-knowing. Remember, Jesus is, although he is taken on human flesh, he's truly human, he's also remained truly God. And he still, he still possesses divine power and divine knowledge. And he, he knew their thoughts. He was able to look into their thoughts, and then he refutes the claims that they make. First, by exposing their irrationality of their arguments... And then he attacks their inconsistency, right? Their hatred for him had fundamentally clouded, had clouded their judgment and clouded their reasoning. And that's what sin does. That's sin for you, right? 
Sin is that, that moral decay that's within our hearts. It affects our emotions. It affects our motivations and our behaviors. And it also affects that one thing that, that directs all those, those different elements of our personality. It affects our minds. Right? Sin is biases our minds. Our minds are sin-biased. With our minds, we, we justify our sins. We, we attempt to reason away our guilt, and we try to reason away our unbelief, and even if we could, we try to even reason away truth itself. But Jesus points out the foolishness of their claim, and he gives it, does it through this illustration of a kingdom and a household. He says, look at verse 18, uh, 17 18. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. A divided and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. One of probably the most important, significant political speeches in United States history quotes this text. 1858, on the heels of the American Civil War, at that time, the Illinois State Senate candidate Abraham Lincoln addressed the State Republican Convention with this speech that would later be titled, A House Divided. And he's, in that state statement, that speech he made, he stated this. He said, quote, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. I do not ex expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all another thing, end quote. Lincoln understood, right? The strength and the stability of a, of a nation is directly tied to its unity. Its unity around such things as shared values and, and, and common law. Division and infighting, it only leads to destruction. And this morning's text is probably one of the most famous lines of Scripture because of Lincoln's speech, but it didn't originate with Lincoln. It originated in this text, and its original context that we're looking at this morning is vastly more significant, vastly more important than the claim that, that uh, Lincoln was using. Jesus is demonstrating that the Pharisees' claims is essentially nonsense, nonsensical. It's self-evident that where there's competing interests and where they're left to thrive, there's going to be division, there's going to be corruption, and, and when it's left uncorrected, it's eventually going to lead to destruction, a destroyed kingdom. And the same is true of households, right? Where, there's, there's mutual, where, there, where mutual love is, is lacking in a household, where there's no agreed-upon set of standards or values or rules, when mom and dad are not on the same page, over time, left untreated, this leads to confusion, leads to disorder, and sadly, leads to broken families. <clears throat> and Jesus is using this illustration to point out the obvious difference between himself and Satan. He, Jesus, could never be confused or can never be accused of being in confederation with the prince of darkness. By, by casting out this demon that once held this man captive is an obvious sign that Jesus is in direct conflict with Satan. Jesus was, was clearly subverting 
Satan's power with, with his greater divine power and authority. Masterfully, Jesus is, is confronting their contradiction and he uses it in the form, and does it in the form of a question. Essentially, he's saying, <clears throat> in what universe could someone who's dismantling Satan's power be regarded as an operative of Satan? I should point out that it, it doesn't mean that Satan doesn't attempt to counterfeit God's work. In fact, Jesus does warn against that. He warns about follow, follow, following false Christ and antichrist who can perform different types of signs and wonders. Satan poses, right, as an angel of light, but he can't heal. He can't release people from bondage. Satan holds people bondage, and he holds people captivated, and he leads them into destruction. And the entire trajectory of Jesus' ministry that we've seen up to this point, and we'll see as we continue through Luke's account, is devoted to exposing Satan, exposing his lies, and defeating him, ultimately defeating him at the cross. And so the, the spiritually attuned, those who have the Holy Spirit within them, those who know the Word of God, believe the Word of God, recognize the schemes and the tactics and the tools that Satan employs, and, and, and you recognize them as instruments of people, keeping people in bondage, in spiritual bondage. And we, as God's people, we have the, the armor of God, as we see in Ephesians chapter 6, to, to set captives free. We recognize that freedom only comes from Christ and only in Christ. And Jesus points out next there are inconsistencies here in verse uh, 19. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. If casting out demons is a satanic act, then why don't the Pharisees also, pardon the pun, demonize all exorcists? If they're going to slander Jesus, then why stop with him? They should do the same for everyone else in Israel that's, that's casting out demons. But they haven't done that. They won't do that. And although they, they recognize Jesus' exorcism here is a work of God, they won't apply this to Jesus' work. Why? Because they hate him. And so Jesus warns that because of their hatred, because of their defiance, they're going to face judgment for their blasphemy. Commentators are split here, though on what Jesus means by stating they will be your judges. In what way will these exorcists be their judges? Some believe this is a reference to Jesus' disciples. It's not a reference to just general exorcists that were around there during the day, but they were, he's, they're, he's applying this to um, his own disciples. Jesus calls them your sons because they are general sons of Israel, meaning that they, they're members of, of God's covenant people. They're part of the, the, the Jewish people. And although, like Jesus, the disciples are casting out these demons by God's power, they are not the ones who are targeted by, um, by the Pharisees' attacks. But it says here, the religious leaders will be held accountable one day when they face judgment before God. And, as Jesus says in, in, in Luke chapter 22, verse 30, his disciples 
will also will be there who will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. See, see the connection there? They'll be sitting there. They'll be the ones judging on the last day, sitting over the 12 tribes of Israel. The other way of looking at this, which I think is the, the more natural way of reading this text, is that Jesus is referring, referring to the Pharisees' protégés, the Pharisees' disciples. They, and they're not going to undermine their own ministers who are, who are working on their account, right? They're not going to call out their own disciples who are doing these, these, um, these works. But their sons will serve as judgment for them in that they are going to be exhibits before the throne of God of their hypocrisy, right? They confess that, that, that they're doing the work of God, including allowing and, you know, and, and supporting the casting out of demons by these other exorcists, but at the same time there, though, they're, they're going to defame the chief exorcist among them, which is Jesus Christ. And they're going to experience judgment, divine judgment, for their sins, for that reason. And in the very next sentence we see here that Jesus underscores now the severity of their sin, just how deep they are in their depravity. He says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Why are they going to incur God's judgment? Well, it's because they refuse to acknowledge God's power and authority in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God's very Son. They're not simply slandering a, a, a competing miracle worker, but they're they're defaming the, the king of glory, right? Whose words and his works demonstrate that the kingdom of God has now arrived on earth. The kingdom of God was, if you've been tracking with us up to this point, we talked about already, it was the, the hope of the Jewish people. Was this, the coming of God himself to earth and, and, and his kingdom being set up and established. And this would finally put an end to all the political oppression they were going through and he would establish at the center Israel, the center of the world, where all the nations would, would come and they would gather together and they would worship God because from Jerusalem would be, be a, a king that would reign and rule in the lineage of David with perfect justice, perfect righteousness, and perfect peace, bringing shalom back to the created order. The king, however, was, was standing now right in front of them. But they didn't recognize him. Why? Well, because the kingdom came in a form that they didn't expect. It would one day match the, the physical expression that they were looking for, that they were anticipating when Jesus would come a second time. But the kingdom's inauguration, its, its, it's beginning, its, its germination on earth was, was being displayed with Jesus' first coming. He was there right in front of them. But he came as the humble king. I was coming to release sinners from enemies that were much more menacing than, than Rome. The, the enemies of sin. The enemies of Satan. And Jesus' works and his words, in this case, in this passage this morning, his, his, his exorcism was a demonstration of his glorious reality of the kingdom being here, being present, being right among them. So that the Pharisees, 
don't miss the point, and that not just them, but us as well, so that we don't miss the point. Jesus uses, uses this illustration of, of war in verses 21 through 23. <clears throat> he describes this, this fully armed and heavily armored um, guard, this palace guard. And no one's getting by him to take his possessions. There's nobody that, 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 can, that can withstand uh, just his strength. Not even John Wick can make it through him, right? He's a force that's, just, that's, that's to be reckoned with until a stronger man comes along that's going to level him. And this mighty warrior then is able to strip this, this guard of his armor and, and, and then can easily make, make off with his goods, with all the riches that he has in store in this, in, in this estate. Satan is the strong man. This, this is what Jesus is saying. That Jesus is saying that this is the strong man who's heavily armored, a force to be reckoned with, this palace guard is Satan. And his armaments, they, they appear secure. They, they appear to be invincible. And just as insurmountable as, as, this, as this, this palace guard is, is the hopelessness of those that he's holding captive. There's no earthly power that can match this power. But then a, a mighty deliverer and a king arrives. Jesus Christ is that stronger man. He's the one who overpowers the devil. He releases Satan's prisoners by the finger of God, it says. He acts as God's, his acts are God's acts because he is the mighty Lord of hosts. He is God in the flesh. Jesus uses this phrase, the finger of God, intentionally. It harkens back to at least two Old Testament uh, passages that, that the Pharisees and the scribes would have immediately understood. The first is Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. When, if you remember, Moses is there before Pharaoh, and, he, and he's telling Mo, Pharaoh you know, to release God's people. And, and, and Moses and, the, and, and, his, and his, his brother Aaron are competing against these magicians. They're battling over the fate of God's people there in, in, that are in captive, uh, held captive to Egypt. And God issues this series of plagues, if you remember, uh, over and over to display His power, His authority, His superiority over the Egyptian gods, these pagan gods that the Egyptians um, uh, worshipped. And, and to show as a warning of, of His impending judgment, unless Pharaoh releases the Jewish people and allows them to leave the nation to worship their God, the one true God. And at one point, the Egyptian magicians are trying all they can to counterfeit all these amazing works that are being done by Moses and, and, and Aaron, by God himself. And they have to admit at one point, they say, this is the finger of God doing these things. We can't do them. And the other place this phrase is used is after the Exodus, after God delivers his people. And they're on their way to this land that God has prepared for them to, to set up and establish a kingdom and his temple is going to be there with them. And God is giving them this, this law and he enshrines them on these stone tablets that it says he writes them with his finger. Exodus chapter 31, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with them on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So you see what Jesus is saying? 
the Pharisees? As the God-man who is united in deity and purpose with God the Father, who exercises power, the power of God through the Holy Spirit to rescue spiritual captives and to crush Satan's head, which again is the fulfillment of the prophecy that he made to Adam and Eve and this promise in the garden. Jesus is the living, breathing Word of God who showcases God's character. He reveals God's commands and His promises and His purposes. Jesus is not just an impressive exorcist. He's the sovereign King of kings who has jurisdiction over every person, every creature, every fiber of the universe, every part of the universe. And He's waging war against the enemies of sin and Satan. And we can either join Him or we can defame him. We can join him on his mission, or we can suffer the inevitable fate that the devil is going to one day experience utter destruction and judgment in the fires of hell, eternal judgment. And there's no middle way, there's no neutrality. You're either with Jesus or you're set up against Jesus. Scripture teaches that by default, that's who we are. We're, we are all opposed to Jesus. We're all bored in sin. We're rebels against the King of Kings and on our, on our own sin, as well as the lies of, of Satan, they, they blind us to the inevitable consequences of our sin, of our captivity, which is destructive living, right? And eventually, punishment in hell. And although we are captive to Satan, his influence... We're also culpable, we're also responsible for the slander and the skepticism that we hold against Christ. But this is the most unbelievable part of all of it, right? The gospel. The good news that Jesus rescues us from the grips of Satan and sin. He conquered everything that stood in the way of us experiencing a loving relationship with God. And it comes through God's plan, God's way, not one that we could have devised. It comes through the cross. So at great cost to himself, in love, God sacrificed himself by dying a sinner's death. The death that, that we should have died and, and going to the cross and experiencing the punishment that we should have experienced. The one that we deserved. He spilt his royal blood acted as the sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world so that all who trust in him by faith can be set free. Amen? Amen. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 states, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is with Christ, having forgiven all your trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. This is the gospel. And because of his saving work, we receive all the incredible and irrevocable blessings that can't be taken away from us. Peace with God, forgiveness of sins, the imputed righteousness of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit, God in us, a family called the church, eternal life in Christ. 
but we also join not only with Christ, not only by His side, behind Him, but by His side in mission with Him, gathering others under the banner of Christ and championing His eternal kingdom. We're brought into the kingdom of, of God's beloved Son, Jesus, with, with a purpose now. To join Him in seeking and saving the lost. We can't save sinners just as we couldn't save ourselves. But what we do is we herald the good news of the gospel. We, we proclaim the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We have the privilege of, of gathering with Christ. Look at verse, 20, verse 23 here. Jesus is mixing this, these metaphors, right? He, he, he's the conquering king, but he's also the shepherd who gathers the sheep. He's, he's also the Lord of the harvest, gathering the harvest when it's ready. And he calls us to join the mission, to be laborers, to be gatherers of the harvest, a harvest of souls, a harvest of people. We who share in the benefits of, of salvation also get the joy of seeing others come to faith in Christ. It's being used by the Spirit's work to see others come to Christ through our efforts. And that should be humbling, right? That should cause us to be loving and to be patient with those who are still in the grip of, of Satan's deceit and in bondage to sin. We, we can be humble because we know what it was like, right? We know what it's like to be deceived. And we know what it's like to receive the miracle of rebirth, of regeneration. And that should, that should also, I think, should bolster our confidence, right? Should bolster our confidence, not in ourselves, but in the gospel, what the gospel could do. What, what, the, what the Spirit is doing through our demonstration and declaration of the gospel. It's not, it's not about persuasion, it's not about depending upon our own intelligence to, to be more intelligent than somebody else. Our mission is simply to be faithful in declaring the truth, no matter how foolish it sounds to the world. No matter how dark the days become either. Our mission is the same. It will remain the same. And we bring with us the truth that Jesus has overcome the forces of Satan. His kingdom's crumbling. Satan's kingdom is crumbling. The kingdom of God is here, it's been being established. And although Satan continues to tempt, to deceive, to oppress others, he's powerless against Jesus Christ. Amen? He's like a wounded animal. A wounded animal that's bleeding out. He's bleeding out and it's just a matter of time before he's completely destroyed. And then finally we see in verses 24 to 26, Jesus issues a warning right after the heels of this illustration. He describes this haunting reality of those who have experienced remarkable freedom, but one that doesn't last because they have not responded in, to faith, by faith in Christ. Although they've received maybe some spiritual insight, maybe even they've heard the gospel, they, they, they've received the benefits and experienced the benefits of being around God's people, the blessings of being surrounded by God's people. They've experienced those things, but they have not bowed their knee to Christ. We are programmed by sin to work out our freedom, right? Aren't we? To try to 
manage on our own, to, to somehow tidy up our lives our own way. But it's not going to work, right? It's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't work when we try it on our own. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, finding none. It returns to the house of which I, it came from. And then when it comes, it finds a house swept and put in order. All seems right. All seems orderly and organized and put back in order and manageable. But then it goes and it brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and they dwell there. And that last state of the person is worse than it was before. We try to tidy things up. We think we've got it together. Maybe we even, even experienced some sort of, uh, of deliverance, of bondage. But salvation, true salvation, lasting deliverance, only comes by the work of Jesus Christ. And when He sets you free, when the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Kent Hughes, one of the commentators I read, the, I read this, this week, put it this way. He says, quote, Jesus is saying to his religious hearers that self-reformation without regeneration and the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, is fatal. Temporary moral reformation is in, inadequate. Anyone who purges evil but puts nothing in its place is in grave moral danger, end quote. And so my question is, is that you this morning? If that's, if that's you, I just I implore you, don't live in a false sense of security. There's no religious activity that's going to, that's going to bring you to lasting peace, bring you lasting freedom, except only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that this morning? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this text, this, this scripture that calls us to yourself, that makes plain who you are, that there's no other evidence that we could seek out. There's nothing else that we can, we can look for. There's no greater argument or per, that can persuade us into realizing that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You stand before us this morning, not visibly, but by your Spirit, and you're calling out those who have not placed their faith and trust in you. I pray, Lord, that you would do the work of regenerating hearts, that you would do the work that, that no person can do, and that you would bring them in, out of the grip of Satan, out of the grip of sin, and into the grip of your grace. And Father, for those of, those of us today who are believers, but we uh, have fallen back into trusting in ourselves, I pray that you would forgive us first, and then you would offer us the truth of your word, again, plainly reminding us that we, apart from you, we, can, we are nothing, we can do nothing, that you hold us together by your sovereign hand and your power. We, we love you, we, we're so thankful that you have not left us to our own devices, but that you have mercifully challenged us, challenged our unbelief, and then offered an invitation to come to you. You did that for the Pharisees. You do that for us this morning as well. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would, we would hear that this morning. That you would change us, Holy Spirit, and that we would remember that we, have now, that we now belong to you are also on mission to go and to gather alongside you those 
who don't know you. Lord, just give us a desire for the lost. Give us a, a heart for them, a love for them, a patience for them, um, and uh, help us to continue in our tenacity to continue to um, declare and demonstrate the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's his, in His name we pray. Amen.